Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. From the plow to the printing press, technology has always shaped human life and informed our understanding of what it means to be human. And advances in modern technology, from computers to smartphones, have yielded tremendous benefits. But do these developments actually encourage human flourishing? That's the question my guest, Craig Gay, asks in his newest book, Modern Technology and the Human Future. In it, he raises concerns about the theological implications of modern technology and of philosophical movements such as transhumanism. By exploring the Christian doctrine of the Incarnation and what it means for our embodied life, Gay offers a course correction to the path of modern technology without asking us to unplug completely. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Craig Gay. Craig, welcome to the podcast. Scott, nice to be here. You have written a book, Modern Technology and the Human Future, and I, I feel like it's fair to say, right, you're not a, you're neither technophobe nor technophile. I mean, it, it, it seems like what you're asking for is sort of for for you're writing for a religious audience but but i think some of your insights about technology are, are of course applicable to all of uh, north american or western culture and i think you're kind of asking us to like slow down a little bit and think about what technology is doing to the experience of being human is that fair yeah no that's that's a good way to put it and i'm yeah i mean i i, I obviously we all benefit and use technology all the time we can't live without it so there's no point in being too negative about it but um, on the other hand, I do worry about the directions it seems to be heading. And uh, the book attempts to sort of uh, I mean, sound the alarm, is, that's, that's to put it too strongly, but just, you know, just sort of raise some, some questions about it. There's um, a couple scholars, uh, Sean Kelly and, and um, Hubert Dreyfus. Hubert Dreyfus is now of blessed memory, but they were Kelly's the philosophy chair at, at Harvard, and they wrote this book uh, called. Uh, all things shining, how to read the classics in a secular age. One of the things they say is that they've kind of learned from Heidegger that they love science, but technology sometimes makes them a little cautious because the two aren't the same thing, right? Like scientific discovery and technology are not kind of part and parcel the same thing, right? Is that fair to say? Well, I mean, yeah, that's true. But, and I think Heidegger, I, I'm not sure about Dreyfus, but um, Heidegger says that the two have become pretty closely related in, in modern times. I mean, you, you don't can't really do science without technology, and you can't really obviously do modern technology without science. So they're hard to, hard to separate. I think up until probably the end of the 17th century, they were separate enterprises. But after the, uh, after the 18th, they're not. And they certainly aren't now. And part of like what, you know, Heidegger's point is, you know, and their point, and you talk about this in your book a little bit, like the skills we lose, right? Like, like when we, something for instance, as simple as GPS, right? Like on our phones. Well, I mean, people had an art of kind of navigating around the world by remembering this tree and, 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 and old man Potter's barn and, and the star, like the, the people knew their world in a way that now, like it's, it's, it, it, it people just don't 
you know, it, it, you go where the phone tells you to go. Right. And there's, and, and that's great when we're, we don't get lost sometimes, but also there's a cost to it. And oftentimes we don't talk about the, we talk all about the benefits and not, and, and you're saying we, we probably need a little more of the cost conversation, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the most poignant sort of example of that, um, that process or that cost was uh, given in Nick Carr's book on automation. And he, he talks about the impact of GPS systems on the Inuit in the, uh, in the far north. And uh, the Inuit were known for having this uncanny ability to, to know where they were in this apparently, you know, featureless uh, Arctic. Uh, and they had, a, I don't, you know, nobody really knows how they did it, but they did. They, they knew where they were and they could find their way around. And uh, anyway, until GPS came in, uh, and uh, now uh, the fear is that basically that ability is lost, and it's lost for good, as far as anyone knows. I mean, uh, you know, it would take millennia, I think, to uh, to redevelop it. So yeah, it seems to be a shame. I mean, yeah, that I'm grateful for the GPS systems, but um, it kind of leaves us helpless when they're when for whatever reason they don't work or. You know, we're not, we're out of cell range or, or whatever. And like if the zombie apocalypse happens, we're goners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, we're goners for all kinds of reasons then. Yeah. I think of certain losses that aren't a big deal, right? Like I, I don't know my wife's phone number, but I could tell you my childhood phone number and my, uh, several of my close childhood friends phone numbers because I had to remember them to dial them. Um, which, you know, again, that is that a huge loss? I'm not sure. But, the, but, but these things, I think of, uh, is it, it I've, is it Plato's Phaedrus or which yeah. dialogue is it? Where, where, where the, the invention of writing, you know, the, the, the God of invention comes from the King of Egypt and says, this is going to make men wise beyond belief. And the King says, no, it's going to make them think they're wise. And, 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 and most of us wouldn't want to decry writing, but, but with any technology, right, there's a, there's a sort of complex interplay that oftentimes uh, it's trying, it's almost like trying to, to think about, right. Like the, the, the air you're breathing or, or a fish thinking about the water it's swimming in. Yeah, I know that's certainly true. And that's, uh, the Socrates, uh, you know, concern about the impact of literacy on memory is, is a famous example. Um, yeah, I mean, it, here's, I think that the, uh, the best way to think about it. Um, if we know, and if we're clear on the kinds of people we are desiring to become, then, you know, these questions about technology become, you know, if not easy, at least much easier to answer because, you know, the, the basic question is, are they helping? Uh, you know, are they helping us to get there or not? And if they are, great, um, you know, let's use them. But if not, then, you know, what, what would the point be? Um, this I, is like Neil Postman's argument, right, in Technopoly, where like, where he's like, it, there's a change in a Technopoly where it's no longer the culture drives the tools, but the tools drive the culture. Yeah, and I think he's right. I mean, he's, he's I think there's no question, but that he's right. And and part of the problem is is we don't really know who it is that we, you know, what what the world is, who, who we are in the world, and and who who we're trying to become. And you know, when that's the case, then. The questions about technology are, you know, basically impossible to answer. And we just sort of drift along with, you know, the new developments and hope for the best. Um, and, you know, I think 
the evidence is sort of out there that maybe that's not the best way to go. I mean, um, there just there seems to be indications that uh, the direction that modern technology is headed is not really enhancing human life as much as it's diminishing it. Yeah, and it, it, and you kind of you know in late modernity, right? Like, I mean, we're homo economists, right? I shop, therefore I am. I consume, therefore I am. And one of the things you seem to argue in the book is that because technology is so married with the only thing that basically we can all agree on is that, you know, capitalism, consumerism, that, you know, that, that our economic fates are so, which drive all of our identity so much, are so wedded with the techn- technological rapid advancement that there's almost no space for critique, right? Well, I mean, it, uh, the way I put it in the book is that it has considerable momentum. Um, and so if we are, if we do become concerned about the directions it's going, uh, we're going to have to generate a fair amount of, um, uh, it, it's going to take a fair amount of pressure to, to change the direction of this development. Um, and a lot of that has to do, as you say, with, with the, uh, with the economy and with the, uh, just the, the profitability of, of, uh, new technologies. Now, I mean, you're a guy like you're obviously. We, it's funny because for our listeners, like the uh, we were trying to figure out the technological connection to talk, and so you're obviously not a, a luddite. Uh, I'm sure you have a, a smartphone, and you know we're talking digitally. And I mean, how do you sort this out yourself? I mean, as far as in everyday life, how do you relate to the technology around you critically? Like, what does that look like for you? Um, well, I'm not sure I do any better than any of the rest of us. I that's that's frighteningly honest. <laughs> I mean, we're, well, we're uh, we're all sort of trying to cope with uh, sort of new rules for uh, you know placing some disciplines around smartphone use. Um, you know, I, I think the main thing I try to do is to remain attentive. You know, genuinely attentive to the people I am face to face with. And I try not to allow the cell phone to interfere, at least with that, that relation, which usually means, I mean, we have a, you know, this is a trivial example, but we have a basket in our front entrance hall at home. So when people come over for dinner, we, uh, it's just a sign. We don't actually mention anything, but the sign says, please place your smartphone here. And um, we put ours there. uh, And, you know, and people are beginning to sort of notice this. And so it's just, it's, it's just a sort of habit you get into to when you're getting ready to sit down around the table, uh, the, the phones aren't there uh, so that they can't interfere with the, the face to face that that's uh, you know, that, that can happen uh, around the, around a meal, around a table, small thing, but, but it's, yeah, it's pretty significant, especially, you know, in the family setting. Um, so I think it's things like that that uh, you know you you uh, you work away at. How do people react? To, is anybody ever like contentious? Like I don't want to put my smartphone in the basket. I mean, how does that like? I, I'm sure that no, nobody's ever been offended by it. I I mean, I'm sure there are people that don't do it. Um, and you know, okay, that's that's up to them. We um, I, the other example of this similar kind of thing is we do a course. Uh, in the summer at Regent College that's out. It's actually in boats out off the coast here. There are some series of islands. And uh, the course is is all about thinking about technology and its impact upon us, as well as thinking about the uh, the Christian doctrine of creation. 
and who we are, uh, you know, who, as as human beings within the created order. Why, but why boats? Well, that's a long story. But okay, <laughs> I'm just curious. Sounds I mean, because the, I well, the short answer is because it's fun and it's a beautiful place to be in the water on you know in in a boat. But the, uh, the slightly longer answer is that these boats are, they're actually replicas of ships' boats from the uh, 18th century, but they are examples of human creativity and technology. So, you know, the minute you step into the boat, you're, you're aware that you are using a technology that's crucial, right? Um, and it, it's keeping you out of the water. Um, but backing up, what we ask people on this course to leave all of their devices behind. And um, this is hard for people. I mean, it's increasingly hard. How long is the um, course? It's about a week. Oh, wow. That's a significant undertaking. To- it's, it's a significant undertaking. And, um, it, you know, it, 10 years ago, uh, we didn't get much pushback on this, uh, you know, the leaving of the devices. Today, um, it's in, it's an issue for people. And, and not because they're you know, cantankerous or, or, you know, they, they don't want to go along with it. It's just that they're afraid to go without. The yeah. Device. We have an expectation of availability today and being reached instantly that, that I guess this is what happens with the technopoly kind of thing, right? That, that then also, I guess you feel like if you unplug that you're, you're, you're not being a good citizen, you're, 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 you're sort of, you know, there's something about like an expectation of you being connected it's probably hard to, to do. Yeah. I mean, there's that, I think there's that, um, although we do, you know, we have a way of connecting people to uh, family and, and whatnot. So that isn't a big problem, but no, you know, the issue is more an issue of, uh, of being afraid to be without the devices. Um, and I'm not sure where that, I'm not sure what the fear is. Um, but yeah, we're, we're t- it's, increasingly tethered to them and and uh, you know without that tether we feel uh, adrift and uh, vulnerable was, i guess there was this video year several years ago that came out went viral over this this child who was reading and was trying to manipulate the book like a screen yeah and it didn't work yeah. you know i found the other day i forget where I, and i still read paper books i'm reading on my ipad too but most of the almost every guest on the podcast i i just prefer traditional books because these are to make notes and stuff. i caught myself trying to enlarge something on paper yeah and i'm and i'm and, and i'm old enough that like i wasn't raised you know this is like this isn't an early developmental thing this is like yeah i grew up before everybody had a cell phone and now like it, it's changing me where i'm looking at paper that way subconsciously yeah i mean i don't know if that's a bad thing or not i i used my phone this morning to actually take a picture of some text that I couldn't read and, and blow it up because it was so small so that I could blow it up. And, um, I'm kind of glad about that. I mean, it was kind of handy. I, w- I wasn't sure how I was going to read this stuff and I needed to read it. It was this sort of print that was printed on a, a tool that I was working on anyway. So, you know, I mean, I, this, this technology is useful. Um, and I guess, I, I mean, the, to the extent that it, again, that to the extent that it enables us to become more of ourselves and, and more engaged with the world and more engaged with each other and sort of more alive, I think great. You know, let, let's use it gratefully. Um, but I worry uh, that it's not doing that, right? That it's uh, it's interfering with face-to-face conversation. Um, 
which is you know how all of us become ourselves is 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 always and only really in in conversations with others and if the technology is getting in the way of that that that's a real problem and i think that it's getting in the way of our experience of uh, of the world of uh, of the world of nature um you know this was albert borgman's main point in in a lot of his work and i think he's right um and it's the the net result is that we're left feeling increasingly helpless apart from the technology and that's not a good thing and alone and lonely and the, you know needless to say that's not a good thing either so and then you you know you ask the question well okay why are we doing this to ourselves is this is this somehow necessary um and that's kind of where i go in the book and i say well there are there are some reasons this is happening um some of the reasons are economic uh and some of the reasons have to do with the way we've been trained i think to see the world and to see ourselves in it and some of the reasons have to do with the fact that we just we're just not in the habit of asking questions about who is it are we who who do who are we and who are we trying to become and i think Christian religion uh, has a lot to say about all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. You also say, I found this interesting. You say that like before the sort of mass technization of sort of culture, like that things like a kind of mechanistic worldview, like rooted in early modernity and and Descartes and, and even early Protestantism, like it's almost, there's a way that the world is set up to be viewed before all the technological, uh, before it became so ubiquitous uh, that that actually gave rise to it, right? I mean, that that this was a sort of, uh, there was a a desire to see the world this way, which helped facilitate the world we live in now. Yeah, I mean, that's the the thesis that has been advanced by by people like Martin Heidegger and and others. Uh, And I think they're right. I mean, uh, our outlook on the world is... uh, has and and for a whole variety of reasons is mechanical we 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 tend to look at the world of nature and and even our own bodies uh on the analogy of uh machinery um and that's interesting how metaphors run away like where people say something like the brain is like a computer or something or a machine and then and then it becomes a reality i mean these metaphors get kind of a life of their own right and all of a sudden all of a sudden you can't think without them and and it's hard to deconstruct them or ask questions about the language we're even using right no i mean that's certainly true um so if you're thinking about the world as a machine or on the analogy of, of uh, machinery, then, um, you know, fiddling with the machinery comes naturally, right? And, and it, seems, it seems both natural and good to do so. Um, and I think the thought is that uh, our, you know, our real skill at developing uh, tools and, and machinery in, in the modern period, which is now, uh, you know, augmented by uh, scientific understanding, um, flows out of this this understanding, this uh, this mechanical world picture, as uh, as it's been called, and uh, yeah, I mean, the question then to ask is is that an is that the best way to understand the world, or is is it the only way? And it's it's certainly not the only way, and I would argue that it's it's not the best way either, um, and that again, Christian theology has. Uh, 
uh, has a very different way of, of thinking about, you know, what the world is and who we are in the world that could help us to uh, discipline and, and, and um, sort of direct our technological making. And you argue in the book, right, that, that all Christian traditions are not created equal in this regard, right? That some, some churches and some traditions are a little better equipped than others to, to sort of facilitate some of these questions, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't really take sides on the, in the book on, you know, a tradition. Uh, I'm, in fact, I'm drawing from a whole bunch of different spots. I've got citations from uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, from Catholicism, from, yeah, Arrhenius he, is the hero. He could, yeah, I mean, Irenaeus you know, like is Irenaeus? the hero. That's yeah. You yeah. and he's an early Christian thinker. That that a lot of these questions, right? He was for a guy that was at the forefront of the Christian tradition, second century guy. It's amazing how relevant his thinking still is. Like, uh, it's it's astonishing, really. Um, yeah, there's been a kind of Irenaeus Renaissance uh, over the last generation, and and you know you can see why. But I mean the basic thing that he's on about because he's he's wrestling with this group of um oh I, it's hard to know who they were they were sort of quasi philosophers theologians called the gnostics um and this gnosticism was a kind of variation on the theme uh that said that uh, we were imprisoned our spirits are imprisoned within our bodies and uh uh the task is to somehow free them to return to a purely spiritual realm uh, and that, you know, that the, the human problem is its materiality is it's, it's an embodied uh, quality. That's that. What's interesting about this kind of thinking, right? Like it's funny. I just, I do another podcast with a minister friend of mine. We're, we're talking about different, uh, you know, what the Christian tradition calls heresies. And this one we were taught, we're, we're noting is like, even the, even though the metaphysics aren't the same, this thing shows up in every generation. And it, it seems almost like because we resent finitude, like we resent the fact that part of not being God is you're circumscribed, you got limits, you're and this fantasy of like getting to reinvent yourself, not limited by being a sort of fleshy, finite, fragile thing. It seems like even, you know, there's all kinds of uh, late modern Gnosticisms with, with, with all sorts of different sorts of philosophies and psychologies that, but this thing seems to be at the heart of the human condition, the fear of, of, of being limited to what we are. Yeah. I mean, and it's not a mystery why that is. I mean, our, our, our bodies are limited and um, you know, we all face uh, decrepitude and, and ultimately death. And this is, is a problem. Um, and anyway, so, I mean, I think Gnosticism always has a kind of plausibility for, for those reasons. Um, the, the thing that Irenaeus, though, says, which is interesting, is he, he uh, develops, um, well, basically the implications of, of Christ's incarnation, but then also stresses that um, it, it, is the, it is our embodied um, nature um, that God desires to um, perfect precise. It's not our spirits, but it's it's all of us. It's it's the whole package, uh, body, soul, um, and uh, to the extent that we um, we ignore the body, we're ignoring uh, sort of the sight 
of uh, this transformation process that that God wants to, uh, to 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 do within us. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? because of the conversations you find here. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you. To be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sally Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower. Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Press, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalker, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. It's a battle kind of almost already lost, too, when we think of ourselves distinct from our body, like ourselves and our body, as if the body is an appendage. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we can't be who we are without our body, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're more than just chemicals and, uh, and electric impulses and things, but we're no less than that. And there's no us apart from these things. That's like, right. Yeah. I mean, it, it gets... I mean, you could raise questions about that because, it, you know... It, one of the modern theses is that when you die and when your body dies, you die, that's it. It's done. Um, and obviously the Christian tradition has said that, no, that's, that's not true. Physical death is a death, but it's not, it's, it's certainly not the end. Uh, and your spirit or your soul or, you know, whatever you want to call it does survive physical death. Um, but having said that, the hope is always for the resurrection of the body because, you know, like you say, I mean, uh, our bodies are what, uh, you know, are, are what enable us to be ourselves uh, in a world and to uh, do and to love and to, uh, to relate to each other and, and so forth. So the ultimate hope, the ultimate Christian hope is for the resurrection of uh, the body. And, you know, here again, this is something that the Christian tradition has you know, obviously stressed. Um, and the implications of this, you know, spread out in kind of all directions. And, uh, you know, it's, it's all stuff that I think now we, uh, we Christians at least need to remember because uh, they have all kinds of implications for our use of technology and what, you know, what we're trying to do with, with it. Um, and, um, yeah. You, you have this interesting, you raise an interesting question in your book. You point out that, like, it's kind of naive to think that we can get more and more personal, like, with with impersonal means, like driving the uh, driving the train kind of thing, right? Like, it, 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 that 
if the impersonal is in the technopoly is kind of driving things, it's not going to make us more personal, more human. I mean, I think about when I read that, I think I, I, I think about my friends, most of whom are female right now, most of whom that are internet dating and the anxiety it creates because you're sort of, it, you think of it like consumer, like you have so much information before the first date, rather than meeting someone organically at a wedding or a party, you have a few drinks and then you decide, Oh, maybe we could hang out again. And you're just, you're discovering, but now it's sort of like a job interview, right? Because you have all this information and a profile and this and that, and, and all the anxiety of a job interview happens on the first date. And then if it doesn't go well, you feel like you're a bad consumer. Exactly. Like, why did I even, you know, why did I go on that date? I had all the, like this, it, it's sort of like you talk a lot in the book about Weber. He talks about like the steel trap of modernity, right? This cage. And I, I think it's something so simple as internet dating, which is, and again, it opens up possibilities for people like to connect with people. Maybe they couldn't ordinarily connect with, but, but there's a change in the way you relate and things like that, that I feel like people don't even take account of. Like it changes the whole it, dynamic it's far less i thou like martin buber says and more i it well yeah i mean i don't want to i don't really have an opinion about the online dating world um i haven't done it it's not my world um you know I'm, i've been impressed with how many people i've met in recent years that you know that's how they met and uh it does i mean it does seem to be a, a technology that does uh bring people together but you know, once you are brought together, then you don't want to continue using the technology, right? It's, it's, let's, let's actually be together. Um, yeah. And I even think though, the way for so many people that I talk to, it's like, even the, the mystery of togetherness is commodified. Like this kind of thing where it, 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 it becomes such a, now again, we, I, I don't want to live in a world of arranged marriages and premarital or anything like that. Or, or everyone be dependent on, you know, meeting someone, you know, at work or at a, a party or something. But, but there is something that like, it, it, as you talk about with, with, with the technology being so married to the economy and consumerism and capitalism, it almost, it, it, it does do something when that becomes the way of connecting with, people. you know, it, 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 there's a consumer dimension that, and again, I'm not saying people don't connect that way, but there is a cost to beginning the connections that way. Yeah. I, I mean, there probably is. Um, I mean, Sherry Turkle is the one that's done the most interesting sort of work in this line, and it's on the impact of um, smartphones and, and uh, social networks and so forth on um, uh, youth development. And, um, you know, there, there's some disturbing things that they're finding that, uh, you know, people really, um, they avoid face-to-face -face interaction with people rather than seeking it because uh, online, they're able to stay in control of their presentation of themselves in a way that they, that, you know, they they risk uh, by actually entering into the spontaneity of a face-to-face of -face interaction. But yeah, there are no Snapchat filters in face-to-face. -face but you know, I mean, <laughs> but there again, these same people wind up feeling lonely at the end of the day, and and it's like, well, yeah, of course, right? Um, I mean, intimacy and empathy and and all of these things are are only. Um, uh, developed, fostered, nurtured in face-to-face -face relationships. Uh, we are, you know, like it or not, again, embodied creatures. Uh, and the bodies aren't just an appendage and they're, they're not optional. It's, uh, it's, this is, this is, this is who we are. And you, you know, you can look at that in terms of evolution, or you can look at that in terms of biblical theology. Um, 
uh, either way. I mean, it, it's uh, the conclusion is similar in the sense that um, we are uh, meant to be embodied. Uh, and to think now that technology in a, in a matter of just, you know, a generation or two can can enable us to enter into an entirely new way of being in the world is just, it's foolish. And, and I think it's interesting. I think, you know, some scholars argue that Augustine kind of with the confessions, right, changes Western consciousness, that we've got a kind of internal dialogue, you know, and the external world, you know, that, that there's a kind of sort of, I mean, some people argue there's a kind of interiority that you don't see in in, in, in certain kinds of ancient literature before Augustine. It, but then it, it, it's now, it's not, it seems that we're not just, we don't just have an interior self and an exterior self. Like, you know, we have a projected self, like an avatar, a curate, an Instagram. A, like, so, so we have this other, we, we don't just have the sense that we have this internal kind of immaterial or something self, but there's an external one too that we're managing. So there's like three selves now. <laughs> and I think you're right. Like I think, and some people with the one they want most, to, you know, they feel most confident connecting with is the third new one, that this projected self that you, I think you're, you say, well, because it's the easiest to control. Well, I mean, you think it is. Uh, I'm not sure it actually is. Um, it creates all kinds of anxiety for people. You know, am I doing it right? Um, and, it, you know, it's this, this whole spirit of comparison, right? Because you're at the same time that you're trying to control your own self-projection, you're, you're seeing the projections of others who, you know, always seem to be doing it better than you are. So and I, I'm, I'm struck by that, uh, especially with the young people is that there's this spirit of fear and anxiety. Uh, am I, you know, looking, uh, or is my life looking as good as, uh, the lives that I'm seeing, um, you know, online. Yeah. It seems like we have this strange development, even though we've become a morally more permissive culture as we become more diverse and pluralistic, but we're, it seems like a more judgmental culture, a more shaming culture, a less forgiving culture, there's these, you know, something I did drunk at a party, whatever lives forever on YouTube. My fear that somebody 10 years later will see it. And I mean, there's this kind of, there seems to be this kind of uh, pure, puritanical, like censorious judgmentalism that comes from this whole world of the, the competition and the shaming and the likes and the, my best life now and all this stuff, you know, like the people have to, if they, they can't even, you can't even sometimes enjoy a nice meal because you have to take a picture of, of it so that all the people like it first so then you you'll some as if somehow that will enjoy the experience more if if 18 people that are different time zones yeah. like the the meal you ate i mean i think this isn't seems to me to be an unintended consequence of uh, of basically the internet and that is the that these images and uh, things that we that wind up online uh, however they get there are there forever I mean, potentially. Um, and uh, I don't know that anyone really thought about it. You know, yeah, what, what, what would this I, kind of world be? What will this be like? And this uh, is, I think, a through line in your book, right? Like, it's always the unintended consequences that are that, that are the tricky ones, right? Because, you know, I mean, the intended ones, I mean, not that we can always control intentions, but at least at least we're at least thinking about them a little bit. But But the unintended ones are often the ones that are more uh, they 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 shape us in ways that we don't foresee and they stick around seemingly perennially sometimes and 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 it wasn't something we even imagined from the thing that we thought was going to make our lives so much better yeah no that's and i mean that's we're 
dealing with that politically um, in spades right now. And uh, part of it is is the uh, you know the the fact that these images and things uh, on the internet are are there to be mined for political purposes you know forever. But um, then there's also the uh, the potential for manipulation of of sentiment and 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 whatnot, which is you know that's this is a big deal. So you know the question now you know can democracy survive uh, social media is an open question. I I, I hope so. But yeah, because it's so, isn't some of the issue that we're at least with things like writing and other developments, like there was a little more time, and there's still unforeseen consequences. But but there's a little more time to teach people how to live in the new world. But it seems now that people have way more access to information than any previous generation, but are no better equipped and maybe worse equipped to sort it out and figure out what's important. I mean, you kind of it's almost like you you, you exponentially increase this something in this column while not you know, well, depleting something in the other that makes for, 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 yeah, a thing where, gosh, I mean, how, how can people be informed voters and citizens? Well, and, you know, I mean, this isn't a big mystery in one sense because the, the internet isn't designed to make us, uh, or to cultivate careful thought, you know, disciplined thought. It's, it's designed and is expressly designed to, uh, encourage us to be impulsive. Uh, and uh, you know, rapidly switching from one thing to the next. Um, I mean, all of the things that make for deliberative, careful uh, consideration are, you know, in effect discouraged by the internet. Um, and that's not an accident. I mean, in part, maybe that's a feature of the technology in, in some ways, but it, it's more a feature of the way the internet's being designed. Well, yeah, the economy is it, like people make money through clicks and likes, and 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 so and so like the thing is designed to clickbait you, and I mean it's not it's not neutral on that, and because because their economic interests, you know, p- certain people win the more impulsive we are, right? Absolutely, yeah. So, um, you know, not, no big surprise that uh, I think it's disappointing because I, I think we all imagined that uh, having access to all of this information would would actually make us. Uh, smarter and, and more disciplined people, but um, you know it hasn't turned out that way. And there's really no excuse now for anyone to to think that it to think that it will, because I mean we know it won't. Um, so then the question is, well, okay, how how do we foster deliberation and 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 careful consideration and you know rationality and and you know all of these other things that um, you know are necessary for um, uh, living together. Uh, well, and uh, that's where I think we're kind of stuck at the moment. So I had a philosopher on the show a couple weeks ago, and he's been all over promoting this book. It's a great book called Know It All Society, and it, it, the subtitle is something like Truth and Arrogance in Political and Public Life. Or it, it, he's a philosopher at the University of Connecticut, great guy. But he he tells a story in the book where he's having some drinks with some big names in in social media, sort of you know the the West Coast. Silicon Valley kind of area. And he says, you know, what if we, instead of like the like emoji or the poop emoji or the thumbs up, what if we had for, you know, political things and everything, uh, not justified by the evidence, not justified by the evidence or not enough evidence to tell. He said, they all just burst out laughing because he thought it was a joke and they're kidding their buddies. Come here, say it again, say it again. But then he realized (laughs) 
that that what they realized too that on a second level, what was so funny about it is that those things, if we did that, even they wouldn't, they would just become the new emoticon. Mm. They wouldn't, it, they would just be the new symbol for I like it or I don't like it. Or, or rage or happiness they wouldn't you know they would just become the symbol for that they wouldn't stop and make you think more critically which i thought was ingenious and showed how little philosophers know about the economy now and how much people that design facebook do yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> on some level too could could you argue that one of the things you're getting at in the book is the is the perennial human challenge no it, it's 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 it, it's exacerbated and it's exponential because of the technology. But there's we're kind of the only species where there's a difference between is and ought. Like a badger makes a dam or whatever because it can. A bee, bee wasps make a nest because they can. You know, like uh, we are, I, I think, probably the only species that can actually stop and say we can do this. But should we do it? Uh, and it's one of the, I guess, most beautiful and particular things about our about being human. We're a lot like mammals in many other ways, other mammals. But this is the one thing where we actually can stop and say, should we do that or not? Uh, it, it, and and it seems like what you're arguing is that that we're nudging closer to giving that up. The the more uncritical we are with the sort of you know pervasive technopoly of everything that 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 you kind of it seems like we're giving up something or at least uh, diminishing the thing that maybe makes us one of the things that makes us most unique as 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 a, as a species. Um, yeah, I mean, a couple of things to say about that. One is that um, this this mystery of the uh, of practical reason of the fact that we experience, we human beings experience life in terms of, uh, um, of shoulds, uh, should and shouldn'ts, is and ought. Um, you know, th this is, this is a mystery. I mean, it, it, yeah. and people have been trying to wrestle with this for, um, gosh, I don't know, at least, well, probably forever, but uh, in, in certainly in modern thought since Kant. Um, well, it, it goes back earlier than that. The, the other thing to say is that Christian theology has a lot uh, to say about making sense of this, um, that, that we are the creatures, um, and this is signaled in the, in the Genesis text with the language, um, that we are the ones who are created after the image and likeness of God. You've got, you've got all the other creatures are created, the birds and the fish and the animals and Whatnot. But then there finally is are these the creation of these these creatures created in the image and likeness of God. So the question is what is what does that mean? What is that uh, intended to uh, signify? And the, as I understand it, the consensus today is that the uh, the Genesis narrative uh, is constructed on the analogy of the uh, dedication of a of an ancient temple, where the very last thing that happens is you 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 place the image of the God in the sacred space and the image represents the God and, 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 and the God actually comes to inhabit, eventually inhabit the image. And okay. So if that's true, then what the Genesis narrative is telling us is that we are the creatures who are intended to represent and in a sense to mediate God's presence in the world for the sake of the rest of, of the creation. And that requires us to have some distance from the created order. Um, and so we, we, we certainly find that we're not, we're no longer 
immersed in the immediacy of nature, but we're we're sort of stand apart from it. We're able to think about it, to deliberate about it, and and so forth. Um, but then it also means that okay, what does it mean to mediate God's presence? Well, God's desire for the creation is is for the for it to thrive. Right, the very first of the of the divine commands in in the Genesis narrative is to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with life and thriving. And so somehow our task within the created order is to enable other things to thrive, to to be themselves. Um, the other thing that's signaled in the narrative has to do with speech. We're the we're the we're the the ones or the creatures who are called to name uh, the creation and to give voice to it. Um, and again, I mean, this is rich. It it, it means that uh, our task is is to know things for the sake of, um, in a sense, celebrating them um, and to give them back to God in the speech of, of thanksgiving and, and praise. Yeah, Alexander Schmemann, the great uh, Russian Orthodox thinker, yeah. says that we're, we're the only creature that can be Eucharistic, really. They can thank God back for our food and, and become, and, and, and we can be priests and, and no other creature can really do that. Absolutely. And that, and that I, I cite Schmemann in the book. He, he, it's, it's a, this is a beautiful vision of, of human life. Um, and it, it, it just enables us to rethink, you know, who we are and what the world is, um, you know, that it's not a machine um, it's not a, a mechanism, but but rather it is this um, um, this place that has been designed for life to thrive, and then we have been placed within this within this world uh, to give voice to it, to celebrate it, to cultivate it, to to enable things to to become um, you know most fully themselves. Um, anyway, David hey, says it much better than I do, but it's. It is. It's a priestly vocation. Uh, I think that's a good way to, to put it. And it's 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 a way of seeing the world and of being in the world that would I think really help us to think more clearly about technology and uh, about what we're using it for and what we're you know where it's heading. Do you know the the show American Gods? Have you heard of the show? It's on. Um, no, I haven't heard that. It's on. Epics, maybe or Showtime. I think maybe it's Showtime, but it's it's based on this Neil Gaiman novel, and the idea is that like these Odin is sort of trying to kind of recreate his his divinity. Like the idea is that it, it's kind of a lot like the 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 philosopher Feuerbach talks about how like he thinks religion is sort of social projection. So that's really kind of the theory. So like Odin's less powerful because people don't worship him anymore, like they did, and, and they and you know these other gods are less powerful, and and these then there's the old gods versus the new gods and the new gods are, are like social media, you know, television, the internet, they, they, that's what they represent. And they're super powerful. And Odin says to them, well, at least we gave people meaning. What do you do other than just enslave them? Yeah. And I thought it was so profound because it's this interesting thing that we do kind of deify these things and, and, and they take, uh, a, 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 they, they take on a life of their own. And yet, it gives you all the negative, uh, worst downsides of religion, right? The it, it, religion in its darkest forms, without any of the upsides. Mm. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's awful. No, I, that 
I'll, I'll have to look that up. That sounds interesting. Do you I, have any like guilty pleasures technologically that you're like, gosh, I wrote this book and I hate that I like this game or this app or this thing. Is there something that like, you're like, geez. Oh gosh. I waste lots of time uh, surfing, especially YouTube videos. Um, I, I'm sure I will be called to account for all the time I've spent, you know, looking at stupid things on, on, uh, on YouTube. Um, What's the dumbest thing that you like on YouTube? Oh gosh, these uh, big fail videos. Of, <laughs> yeah, those are fantastic. of people, you know, falling off of things and slipping and whatnot. Um, yeah, they're hilarious. I don't, I don't, I don't know why I like them, but uh, yeah, I shouldn't. Well, I shouldn't be admitting this. That, that's a, anyway. It's a really, it's a really human admission, and uh, it's good to know that you're human because you've written a book uh, calling us to. <laughs> to be human. It's a great book. I, I really appreciate you writing it. And thanks for taking some time talking with me about it. Well, thank you, Scott. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out spread the love and goodness if you found it here also if you could go please 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 it takes like 60 seconds go to itunes and write a review and give it give a rating to the podcast it really really helps especially as things are getting off the ground and if you want to consider becoming a patreon sponsor you can just go right to the link on the podcast give and take that fireside.fm you can find all the information there Thanks to Craig for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Modern Technology and the Human Future. You won't regret it, I promise you. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.